0: Hello. Hi! My name's Brad Majors. Uh, this is my fiancée, Janet Weiss. Anything wrong with your mind, really? Another thing, Doc. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. Look, you stupid bastard! You've got no arms left! Yes, I have! Look! just a flesh wound. You're gonna need a bigger potion. Welcome back. Welcome. To Phenomenal Flicks. Welcome to a very special episode of Phenomenal Flicks. My name is Tommy Tracy, your host of this podcast. Today begins a new idea I've been mulling over in my mind for years, and I mean years, about 10 years, in fact. And that is a complete review of a year of cinema. This year, of course, as you see by the title, is 1975. Why this year, you might be asking? Well, I do have a few reasons. The first is 1975 is the first year I can picture in my mind a clear view of the most films I have seen right off the bat. Now, of course, being a film student, I have seen films from the beginning of cinema up until today, but 1975 really is the year that I have seen at least 20 films and it made it easy for me to be able to collect these films, whether I had to rewatch them or films I've seen so many times that I can quote them front to back and sort of decide, you know, what I liked best, what I didn't like, and whatnot. The second reason is the start of the summer blockbuster, and the third reason is the very first year of the Academy Awards that I began to pay attention to heavily. Now naturally I was not born in 1975, I wasn't born until 1989, but through old clips, whether it be on viewings of older Oscar ceremonies or YouTube clips that I had seen, or even this gigantic tabletop book that I had rented from the library once, it was just the first year that really stuck in my mind of something special. Out of the 20 films I have seen, I plan on doing a few things. The first thing is a top 10 ranking with mini reviews of each film. These will be a descending order so from number 10 to number one and ratings don't matter here. Grades do not matter. If I enjoy a film and I give it an A plus just on its basic film making technique that doesn't always mean it's going to be the number one film. Most likely it will be but not at all times because I'm grading that film as its own. Whereas I could give a film a B plus and still like that film more if that makes sense. It's just a B plus in the realm of its own film. The second thing I want to do with this review is a brief review of the Academy Awards that chronicled this year. So since it's the year of 1975, I would look at the 1976 ceremony which celebrated the films of 1975. And I want to tackle the six major categories, which are best picture. Best Supporting Actor and Actress, Best Lead Actor and Actress, and Best Director, reflecting on the winners, who I felt should have won, and see if there were any snubs as well. The third thing I would like to do is just give you 10 songs of the year that I really enjoy. This is the year of COVID, not 1975 of course, but 2020, and there was all these things going around called Quarantunes, and I decided, you know what, I like Top 10 lists, I like music. Why don't I make a Quarantunes of every year 10 songs that I love that they don't really, you know, lend themselves to a pandemic, but they lend themselves to that year. And I thought that would be a lot of fun. Now, these will not be reviews. I'm literally just going to list 10 songs. And if you want to go listen to them, please do. If they're not your cup of tea, that's cool, too. It's just 10 songs I like. So get your seat at the theater. Grab your popcorn and your soda and smile You son of a bitch. My number 10 film goes to Barry Lyndon, a historical drama about an Irish peasant who lucks his way into wealth and notoriety. This film is directed by the late, great Stanley Kubrick and, as such, looks and just feels incredible right off the bat. Kubrick, or Kubrick, depending on if you're British or American, is known for his incredible depth and his scope in his films, which, oddly enough, Is sometimes a detriment to his films. Barry Lyndon however is one of those flicks where there seems to be shots and angles just for the sake of having shots and angles. That being said it's still a very well put together film. Ryan O'Neill is an actor I'm not familiar with but I was enthralled by his role of Redmond Barry later known as the titular character Barry Lyndon. That is not a detriment to this film at all as I was able to take away the, hey, I know that actor aspect out of films that we get a lot and really see him as this character. I'm not saying that's Ryan O'Neill. I think that's Barry Lyndon. That's who I'm watching. He was detached, and I felt an uncomfortableness with the actions as he was portraying them. Again, this is not a detriment, but at least what I felt, a witty satire, and quite frankly, a man making fun of Of the upper class whether it be seeing that in the 18th century where this film takes place the 1970s where the film was obviously filmed or even today and he's making fun of them by attempting to become one of them speaking of the cast I wasn't familiar with the majority of this cast there are a lot of bit players here and my research lent me to discover that these men and women are character players from small parts in both film and theater This created a more communal vibe to me, really making the viewer feel as though they were witnessing a play rather than a film. Barry Lyndon is honestly long as hell, clocking in at a whopping 187 minutes, which is just a few minutes over three hours. There were times where I felt that, and I can see that causing a lot of people to steer away from it. As candidly as I can say it, this film is a character and film study it can be long and boring and if you're not into that as i am because i am a former film student then you aren't going to like barry lyndon my hope however is that anyone who listens to this gives each film a chance including this one if you can sit there and watch sort of this interesting dramatic satire about wealth, and fame. Not really so much fame, but wealth, because like I said, it's the 18th century. There wasn't a lot of fame going on, but if you can sit there and give this film a chance, please do so. With that said, I'm giving Barry Lyndon a B-. My number nine film goes to Race with the Devil, an action horror film dealing with two sets of couples who accidentally stumble upon a satanic ritual in the middle of nowhere and flee across Texas for their lives. This film is the 1970s filmmaking to the T at its best. Dirty, grainy, fast-paced, does not give you a lot of time to breathe. Once the chase is on, it is on. There is just no letting up. This is the best of 70s horror. Action and car chasing and car, car stunts that I have... Ever seen from the time period personally. You wonder just how these four people are going to escape what seems to be an unscapable event, a never ending supply of Satanists that are just at them at every turn. You wonder how they're going to survive. The way no one can be trusted in the entire state of Texas is both hilarious by today's standards, but literally, you meet the sheriff, the gas station attendants, the RV park patrons, where there's hundreds of them, everyone, nobody can be trusted. And to quote Randy Meeks from Scream, everyone is kind of a suspect. Acting-wise, this film is a little hammy, especially from one of the lead characters, Warren Oates. But Peter Fonda plays a quite solemn and terrified man trying to protect his not only himself and his wife, but his friend and, her, and his wife. He lashes out at the correct moments, both at authority and his friends, threatening anyone with violence to circumvent his own demise. The ending in which the couples, again, they're fleeing through Texas, they think they've escaped their tormentors, they think they've finally just gotten it over with, only to find themselves in a pitch-black, deserted desert surrounded by fire and Satan's pupils is terrifying, even more so when the screen cuts to black goes to the credits, and you have no idea what happened. Check this film out, of course, like I said, it's my number 9. Everything on this list you should be checking out, but with that said, I'm going to give Race with the Devil a B. The number 8 spot goes to Death Race 2000, a campy feature that mixes the old wacky racist cartoon with extreme, ridiculous, over-the-top, glorious violence. Taking place in the... (laughs) and I laugh as I say this, the dystopian future of 2000, I know, remember when that was a thought? America's entertainment is shown to us in the form of this transcontinental race, where points are awarded to drivers by the way they run down their opposition and how unique the kills of just random passerby are. This seems silly, and trust me, it is, but in the most fun and entertaining way possible. This film is produced by... Legendary schlock producer Roger Corman and directed by Paul Bartel, who I did not actually know this man directed this film. He directs another one of my favorite movies, Rock and Roll High School, which I'll hopefully get to if I do the 1979 films. And they are known again for their campy, over the top, ridiculous set pieces, dialogue, characters, and just stories in general. And I thought that was a lot of fun. I think the most fun part about this movie, and I'm going to use that word a lot here it's kind of the ever changing story that we get sure they're on one one path to the finish line but the way the film changes from character to character on a whim having the viewer follow their adventure for a few minutes and switching to another is just really entertaining nothing here is to be taken seriously not the violence not the deadpan seriousnesses seriousnesses seriousness of the tv reporters or the character names, such as David Carradine's Frankenstein or Sylvester Stallone's Machine Gun. Sadly, I do feel this movie might be a little too silly for like casual audiences, especially modern casual audiences, who either won't or refuse to transport themselves back in the time to the thought process of 1975, to the politics, to the satire. That is a must for a film like this. A lot of us weren't alive in 1975. I, of course, wasn't, as I mentioned earlier. But I am able to kind of take the f- the filmmaking knowledge I have, the satire knowledge, the political knowledge I have, and transport my mind to that time to see why this is funny. And I encourage anyone to do that when they watch an older film. If you can put yourself in that position and laugh along with the ridiculousness, then you're golden. With that said, I'm giving Death Race 2000 a B. My number 7 spot goes to The Stepford Wives. A horror satire, because we're going to see a lot of those, revolving around a woman who relocates with her husband and kids from New York City to a small Connecticut community where the women are eerily subservient to the men. Before The Handmaid's Tale, Handmaid's Tale, Handmaid's Tale, one of the two, we had this film, based off of a novel from 1972 of the same name. While I do find the plot... A little unrealistic, and more details on that in a moment, the want of a subservient wife amongst men is something I can see a group of very misogynistic, egomaniacal men would love to see, and it's something we've seen in previous times, I hope we don't see that now, but in the 70s with the women's movement and kind of the free love thing, it's kind of jarring to see this placed into a 70s horror drama. We see this a little bit still today, though. I say it's unrealistic, but uh, it's kind of timely with the political women on the conservative side, especially someone like Amy Coney Barrett. (laughs) Back on topic, however, Joanna, our main character, played by Catherine Ross, notices as she gets to this new town, how strange and unusual the town is, especially the women are, right off the bat. Many of the women are stoic and kind of unresponsive and willing to do anything for their husbands. And the real terror comes from her friend, Joanna's friend, Bobby, who is a free freewheeling flower child woman who is all for feminism. And then one day, changes on the spot into another conformist housewife in the county of Stepford. The ending scene, which sees Joanna encounter her android counterpart, who has soulless eyes, pitch black, blank eyes, and she comes towards her, ready to strangle her and take her place to make her step in line and be that subservient wife, is just goosebump-inducing. When the film ends... With all of the women of Stepford dressed to the nines, conforming to the men of the town, one wonders. Do the men know? Do they care? I feel like they have to, but the film never answers that question, and that, again, is part of the true horror of this movie. It's not jump-in-your-face scary. It's think-about-how-terrifying-this-idea-is scary. As I mentioned with an earlier film, this film looks very 70s. There is a lot of grain on the camera, an abundance of interesting and deep thoughts and shots. The film is beautiful, in an unnatural sort of way. It's a near-perfect snapshot of filmmaking, and the film lives on in our vernacular, as the term Stepford Wife has become a commonplace word to describe someone that kind of does what the women here does. I would call Amy Coney Barrett a Stepford Wife. Sadly... There was an atrocious remake in 2004 that you may see make worse of list if I cover that year. But however, this is about the 1975 film and with that said, I give The Stepford Wives a B B+. My number 6 spot goes to Dog Day Afternoon, a crime drama following two men moments after they complete a bank heist. This film that takes place, I'd say 98% in this bank, is anxiety-inducing from the moment it begins to the moment that it ends. Directed Sidney LeMay somehow sucks you into wanting both the criminals and the authorities to succeed. Al Pacino plays Sonny Wartzik, I believe is how you say his last name, the head bank robber, if you will. And wow, he is on full Pacino here in the best way possible, not in the campy way. His acting chops are somewhat jaw-dropping as he plays on the edge of not only maniacal, but tactical as well as terrified at the same time. There's not much to say about how it's filmed. Honestly, it's pretty paint-by-numbers, pretty basic, with the strengths of it coming from the acting and gripping story that pits good versus bad, but not in the way you would think. There are shades of gray everywhere here. Firstly, Sonny while a lawbreaker, of course, he's likable. He's damaged but likable and able to play with audience emotions both in and out of the film. By that, I mean there is like a group of, you know, sightseers. I don't want to say sightseers. Onlookers who are watching the police kind of negotiate with Sonny. So that's what I mean by the audience in the film. And then, of course, you, me, and anyone else watching would be the audience outside of the film. Anyway, Sonny has a lot going on. Most notably with his lover Leon played by Chris Sarandon and yes I said his lover named Leon this was the 1970s when being gay was still considered I don't want to say in poor taste because of course it's not but something of a taboo and it was a taboo for reasons that I still don't understand but again I wasn't alive back then But this was a bold choice of all involved to introduce that aspect in a serious way, not making fun of them, not being the stereotypical portrayal of gay, but the hurt and the damage and the terrified feelings these people would have actually felt in the 1970s. Another very interesting aspect of the film is the lack of musical score throughout. The only music comes from a few diegetic songs in the story's universe. Now diegetic means that they're songs that the people in the film can also hear, whereas non-diegetic would mean that that's a score, that's something that only we would hear. This film is based off of a real bank robber. Now the real bank robber has said that this is pretty fabricated and a lot of what happened here did not really happen, but I'm not basing that off the true events. I'm basing it off the movie. So with all that said, I give Dog Day Afternoon a B plus. My number five spot goes to Nashville, and by God, we have another satire film. It also, somehow, won't be the last. But, back to the film, Nashville takes an ensemble cast, who I will mention shortly, and places them in, well, Nashville, Tennessee detailing the lives of country and gospel music stars over a five-day period which leads up to a major gala event, a concert, if you will. I hate to quote directly from Wikipedia, but I felt in this case it was necessary, and I hope you understand why in a moment. So here it goes. Nashville is noted for its scope. The film boasts 24 main characters, an hour's worth of musical numbers and multiple storylines. It is now considered director Roger Altman's magnum opus and one of the greatest films of all time. And I see why. The way Altman was able to craft the aforementioned aspects, the character, the music, and the story into a two and a half hour epic is nothing short of extraordinary. Boasting a crowd of actors consisting of Ned Beatty, Ronnie Blakely, Jeff Goldblum in a very early role, Karen Black, Lily Tomlin, Keith Carradine, Shelley Duvall, Scott Glenn, amongst obviously many others. Each having an appealing and interesting story and character to tell is amazing. I'm not a fan of gospel music, but I do enjoy classic country. And by that, because I've actually had to have this conversation with someone, I mean the works of like Loretta Lynn, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton, John Denver. That's what I mean by classic country. And this film riffs on that genre very well. The risk of creating a sense of self-importance with one's own celebrity is also on display here, as the established stars are egotistical with a large sense of self-worth and arrogance, while the younger generation of musicians are kind of naive and new to the aspect of fame, fortune, concerts, and whatnot. There are political theories also discussed here, capitalism on the behalf of the artist's art are being a major focus that you will see in this film as well as the last scene in which Blakely's character, Barbara Jean, is seemingly killed by an errant fan via a firearm and it's terrifyingly realistic to what happened five years later to John Lennon. Somehow, people sort of blamed Roger Altman for John Lennon getting killed because they said this might have, you know, made Mark David Chapman want to do that, which I think is just absolutely ridiculous. We all know that man A was crazy and B, he wanted to blame another work of art for that. But again, this is beside the point. That's not his fault. It's not the film's fault. And this is a movie that I think again, everyone should see. The musical numbers are amazing. The cast, while they don't get a lot of screen time, because of course, like I said, there are close to 24 main characters. They're all great, and they all have fun, and they all have a story to tell. And with all that said, I'm going to give Nashville an A-. The number four spot goes to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now bear with me here. If you haven't seen this film, A lot of what I'm going to say in this mini-review is not going to make sense. See this movie, please. I mean, just beside the point of this list, you should see every movie on here. But really, this one is one you're going to kind of want to see just based off principle alone. Rocky Horror is less horror, more, I'm going to use the word again, satirical, but a satirical musical with a twist of just blood and guts and, again, over-the-top ridiculousness. The film that essentially created the Midnight Movie as we know it today, this is a cult classic, one that has lived on for 45 years in the minds of freaks and geeks. What Rocky Horror lacks in filmmaking technique, which is, is still pretty good, but it's not incredible, it makes up for in its originality, its energy, and its strangeness. This is a movie, like I just said, for freaks, outcasts who were shunned for the weird things that they liked, which aren't really even weird, but just not the norm, especially of the time. This was a breeding ground, especially in the midnight movie aspect of just outcasts able to go and be with their fellow dorks, geeks, freaks, losers, and be able to sing along and feel a sense of community that they can't feel in what is considered the normal world, and I put that in my quotations. The performances are as scene-chewing and scene-stealing as you can get. Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon, as Brad and Janet respectively, are laughably ignorant, playing their characters as straight as they can in this dumb, ridiculous nightmare that they've entered. The triforce of Patricia Quinn, Little Nell, and Richard O'Brien as magenta columbia and riffraff the mansion's help are unsettlingly interesting unsettlingly it's not really a word but i'm going to create one here they are just strange and you can't help but stare at their strangeness but of course it is tim curry as dr frankenfurter the sweet transvestite themselves that steals the show Commanding every scene that they are in. They are evil, strange, and damaged, and a perfect cocktail for this insane villain. To say nothing about the musical numbers would be a crime. We've all seen the red lips plastered against the black background before, starting us off with the science fiction double feature number, which is so good, and everyone thinks it's sung by a woman, but it's actually sung by Richard O'Brien the opening is an oddity and it explains in some strange way what we're about to see damn it janet helps us understand the naivete of the main characters where touch a touch a touch a touch me is an erotic <laughs> they didn't have the word then but i'm going to say it now an erotic banger that still holds tight and i'm going home is hauntingly heartbreaking and of course It's impossible not to dance and sing along to the Time Warp, which tells you exactly what to do in the lyrics. Probably one of the most dumb lyrics ever, but so much fun and so easy to do. Once this whole COVID bullshit is over, God, I hope it's soon, but if you can see this movie, if you feel comfortable, but if you can see this movie in a crowded theater with your fellow freaks, please do. Don't dream it it, and with that said, I'm giving the Rocky Horror Picture Show an a plus the number three spot goes to one flew over the cuckoo's nest, starring Jack Nicholson as the self-proclaimed cuckoo whose name is Randall McMurphy, finds himself in a psychiatric ward in lieu of some of his prison time. Randall believes this to be an easy venture, escaping the hard labor of prison, but soon finds out that the place is run. By a cold hearted head nurse, Nurse Ratchet. Wow. This is actually kind of perfect timing. I just realized this right now. I'm going to say it off the cuff that this show Ratchet dropped on Netflix. And now that I think about it, that's. Didn't plan that, but that's really cool that that happened. However, the show, which is fine, it's kind of like American Horror Story, but with. I mean, it's got Sarah Paulson in it, so of course it's American Horror Story. But back on point, the film and. Louise Fletcher, who plays Ratchet in the film, swiped the floor with the show and Sarah Paulson. But that's beside the point. We're talking about this movie, so let me get back to it. The 1970s were dark, a dark, dark, dark time for creative things in film. And while this film takes place in 1970, or sorry, 1963, the, 70, the 70s ideals, and especially filmmaking ideals, are here, they're on full display. The film is cold it's depressing, and it's unforgiving. There's a battle of wits between McMurphy and Ratchet, and while humorous at times, you know as the viewer it can only end one way, and we know that the hero, and I'm putting that in quotations, will most likely not come out on top. I put hero in quotations because McMurphy really isn't a good person, but you still root for him. You don't want to see him under the control of Ratchet. He wants to bring some leisure and some fun to this asylum that he finds himself in he attempts to bring this joy to some of his fellow cuckoos a cast consisting of a very young brad duraf christopher lloyd and danny devito surprisingly which i had seen this movie before but i had no idea these two were in it he has an attempt to get the world series on television the 1963 world series which by the way my dodgers beat the yankees that year again, beside the point, but that is also stopped by Ratchet. He wants to go on a field trip, and that is stopped by Ratchet. There's actually a fun scene where he commandeers the bus with the the other people on it, and then they go on this fishing trip, and he he gets in a lot of trouble for that, but it's a very fun scene, a moment of levity in this dark film. Ratchet is an insane person who is leading the insane. She uses outdated and torturous practices on these people to achieve what she considers normalcy to stop them from being crazy, if you will. If you're not enthralled by every second of this film, I cannot help you. Nicholson is amazing. Fletcher, probably even more so. This is a beautiful, dark, twisted... Well, not not fantasy, sorry, Kanye, but dark, twisted movie. And with that said, I'm giving one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest an A+. The number two spot goes to Monty Python and the Holy Grail because of course it does. The great comedy from the Monty Python theater troupe giving a hilarious retelling of the legend of King Arthur and his quest for the Holy Grail in my not so humble opinion is one of the funniest movies I have ever seen. Every scene is funny. Every single scene in this film is funny. Mostly every line is quotable, from we are the knights who say need, to I fart in your general direction, I will taunt you again, tis but a flesh wound. These are things that people still say nowadays, 45 years later, and that is amazing. That is a testament to this film. These are things we say as a culture, and that is pretty amazing. There is not a moment here to be taken seriously. And isn't that what we need sometimes? To laugh? To cry? To cry? mostly from laughter in this film, you cannot take this movie seriously, and that's what makes it so perfect. Monty Python and the Holy Grail is pure comedy from beginning to end, and unlike other films on this list, this isn't some great think piece. It's not the greatest filmed movie. It's not even the greatest acted movie. It's not going to make you feel a certain way like say dog day afternoon or one flew over the cuckoo's nest or the stepford wives did it's just there to make you laugh and that is pure silliness from the moment you hit play to the moment the end credits end i have not much more to say here if you haven't seen this movie good god i've said this already but please see all the movies on this list please see this one with that said i'm giving monty python and the holy grail an a plus Now it's time to move on to my honorable mentions. Movies I consider to be very good, but just not able to make the cut. These will not be reviews, just a simple list, so I'm going to list them off right now, starting with Three Days of the Condor, Shampoo, The Day of the Locust, The Apple Dumpling Gang, and Hester Street. And my number one film of 1975 goes to... I'm not going to do a drum roll, even though I'm a drummer, but you know what it is. It's Jaws. Of course it's Jaws. It's Jaws. You knew it was going to be Jaws. I knew it was going to be Jaws. People who don't even listen to this podcast knew it was going to be Jaws. And you know that because if you listen to my Jaws episode from a few months ago with my buddy and Jaws expert slash lover, Ryan Larson, you heard us talk nothing but praise for this movie. It's a moot point discussing the film too much. For the full review, please, please go listen to that episode. It was so much fun. And Ryan's a Rotten Tomatoes certified critic. And I know that doesn't mean a lot to some people, but it does to us in the field. So go listen to that review. But I will hit the main points here. The terror. The Spielberg. The special effects that didn't work, which made the film that much more special. The acting of our three main characters. The creation of the summer blockbuster. Jaws is a perfect movie a game changer in film, and any list that doesn't have Jaws at number one, while they are entitled to their own opinion, I think it's just insane. It's an A+. You know it's an A+, Jaws is number one. So, As I mentioned, I want to stay away from super negativity as much as possible. Of course, if I see a movie and it's bad, I will review it as such as you've heard from a few of my other episodes. But creating an entire top 10 of worst films is just too negative for my liking. Thus, I will just talk about one movie of the year that I did not like, and that film ironically is called Tommy, the rock opera about a deaf, mute, and blind kid who becomes a pinball wizard, scored naturally by The Who. Obviously, my name is Tommy. I do like The Who for the most part, but I could not understand this movie's point at all. It's less than two hours. It felt like an eternity. The editing's bad, it's not exciting, and Margaret somehow was lauded for her role here. I'm just not a fan. So more power to those who like it. I, however, did not. I'm not going to give it a grade. If it's my worst of the list, you kind of know my grade's bad. But there you go. Please don't watch Tommy. Listen to Tommy, me, the podcaster, but don't watch the 1975 film Tommy. I'm now moving on to the Academy Awards. The 48th Academy Awards, which took place on March 29th, 1976 celebrating the films of 1975. This is going to be a little off the cuff. I I have lists of what won, or what was nominated, what won, and then, of course, what I think should have won. But these aren't going to be full reviews um, like the movies I just did. This is just going to be, hey, this won. I think this should have won. Or, hey, this won. I agree with that. Or, this person got snubbed. So let's start with the Best Picture nominees. A few, uh, Actually, all five of these have been on my top ten list that I just did. So... We have Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, Nashville, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, with the winner being the last one I mentioned, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I I feel like Jaws should have won. I get why One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest did. They didn't want it to go to this blockbuster movie. They wanted it to go to the more serious drama. And it's still a very good movie. I mean, you're picking from five fantastic films, but... Jaws really deserved it, especially in retrospect, especially because we know how important Jaws is now. Moving on to the best actors, the best actor in a leading role, I'm going to mention the actor, the character he played, and then the film he was in. So we have Walter Matthau as Willie Clark in The Sunshine Boys. Jack Nicholson as Randall McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Al Pacino as Sonny Wartzik in Dog Day Afternoon. Maximilian Schell as Arthur Goldman in The Man in the Glass Booth, a film I had not seen, and James Whitmore as Harry S. Truman in Give him Hell Harry, the winner being Jack Nicholson, and I agree with that, Jack Nicholson definitely should have won, he carried that film from the protagonist standpoint, he was a very, very appealing character, and though I had, like I said, I had seen this movie back in high school, I rewatched it again for these reviews, and he he was Jack Nicholson through and through. You understand why he's one of the greatest actors of all time. The best actress in a leading role, I have Isabel Adjani, I believe is how you say her name, who played Adele Hugo in The Story of Adele. Louise Fletcher as Nurse Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Glenda Jackson as Hedda in Hedda. Carol Kane as Gittle in Hester Street. And fucking Anne Margaret as Nora Walker and Tommy. Louise Fletcher won, Louise Fletcher needed to win. Nurse Ratchet is a terrifying character, a horrifying character that isn't over the top. She is so subtle in the way she's scary, and Louise Fletcher, this film would not have been what it was without Louise Fletcher, so good on her winning, and she absolutely deserved it. Moving on to Best Supporting Actor, or Best Actor in a Supporting Role as it's called, We have George Burns as Al Lewis in The Sunshine Boys. That one could have been on my honorable mentions. It's a good movie. Check that out too if you've got the time. Anyway, Brad Dourif as Billy Bibbit in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Burgess Meredith, who most people would know as the Penguin from the 1960s Batman. Anyway, he played Harry Greener in The Day of the Locust. Chris Sarandon as Leon in Dog Day Afternoon. And Jack Warden as Lester Carpfe in Shampoo. The winner was George Burns. It's a good pick. Um, this is a pretty stacked class, actually. But I feel of the five nominated, it should have probably went to Brad Dourif. However, as I thought about it more, the real winner of this award, Best Supporting Actor, should have went to Robert Shaw as, as Quint in Jaws. That man was a powerhouse in that film. He... It, it's a crime he was not nominated. Not even nominated, but it was a crime he didn't win, and that's who I think should have won. Moving on to Best Actress in a Supporting Role, we have Ronnie Blakely as Barbara Jean in Nashville, Lee Grant as Felicia Carp in Shampoo, Sylvia Miles as Jesse Halstead Florian in Farewell, My Lovely, another film I had not seen, Lily Tomlin as Linnea Reese in Nashville, and Brenda Vaccaro as Linda Riggs in Once is Not Enough. Lee Grant won. Um, Shampoo was a decent film. It was on my honorable mentions. She was kind of my least favorite in the film. I think Ronnie Blakely should have won, who plays that sort of stubborn, arrogant, drugged-out country singer in Nashville. I thought she was amazing. If you don't know who Ronnie Blakely is, if you've seen A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, she is the mother in that. And it's pretty surprising she didn't win because I was actually, actually under the impression that she did But no, it went to Lee Grant, which is, uh, it's a a choice. So, moving on to Best Director, while we are flying through these, we have Federico Fellini for Amacord, uh, Milo's Foreman for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Stanley Kubrick for Barry Lyndon, Sidney LeMay for Dog Day Afternoon, and Robert Altman for Nashville. The winner being Milo's Foreman for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Best Picture went to that film. Best Director went to that film. But the winner should have been Steven Spielberg. Who, again, it's a crime this man was not nominated. Not, not even nominated. But the way he changed cinema with one hour and fifty-minute epic, in retrospect, how do you not give the man the? Uh, it's. I'm gonna go off on a tangent. He wasn't even nominated. And all, all five of these movies are very good. All five directors are very good, but did Stanley Kubrick really need it for Barry Lyndon? Did Federico Fellini really need the nomination for Amarcord? No. Steven Spielberg needed this one, and yeah, he got it later, but he he should have he should have fucking won it here, and it's it's literally a crime that he did not. So that's my take on the Academy Awards. That only went about six and a half minutes, so that was pretty good. I thought I was going to spend a lot more time on that. Um, there's, of course, other awards at the Academy Awards, and I think if I do this for other years, I will touch on a few of those. Like, if there's a score that didn't win that bothers me, or like makeup that that, that should have won, or cinematography, I will get into cinematography at later dates as well. But I want to I really focus on the first six, and then if there's other things that I say, hey, this was really cool that this person won, or I really think this person should have won, you know, best uh, sound mixing, then, you know, I will, of course, get into that. The Oscars are like my Super Bowl. They are important to me. And yeah, it is It is literally Hollywood sucking its own dick. I get that. But I mean, it's also respecting not just the filmmakers and the actors, which I think is what people unfortunately focus on too much, but the sound mixers, the cinematographers, the makeup and hairstylists, the set designers, and then the people who are grips and gaffers, people that you don't see that are behind the scenes. That deserve the recognition, and they get to have that one night a year, and I think the Oscars are important for that aspect and yeah, you don't need as much as I respect the man, you don't need walking Phoenix getting up there and telling you who to vote for politically, even though that is as right as american but if you if that's not something you want to see, then fine, don't fucking watch it, but understand that these people that are the the behind-the-scenes people, the people that you don't see by the name because I know you all, as soon as the movie ends, just leave the theater and don't stay for the credits. These people deserve the Oscars, and that's what I love watching it for. So as promised, my Quarantunes of 1975, a list of 10 songs that I feel just define A, the music I love, and 1975, for me. Again, not reviews, just the track name, artist name, and the album it's off of. Please feel free to add these to your playlist if you've heard them before. Some of these you definitely have. If you haven't, give them a shot. TNT by ACDC off of High Voltage is number one. The Wonton Song by Led Zeppelin off of Physical Graffiti. Only Women Bleed by Alice Cooper off of Welcome to My Nightmare. Fly By Night by Rush off of Fly By Night. Love of My Life by Queen off of A Night at the Opera, Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac off of Fleetwood Mac, I'm Not in Love by 10CC off of the original soundtrack, or you guys might know it from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd off of Wish You Were Here, Young Americans by David Bowie off of Young Americans, and Rock and Roll All Night Live from Detroit by Kiss from Alive. Well thank you so much everyone for listening. This was a really fun thing I wanted to do. Nineteen seventy five is a great year in film and this took a lot of research, a lot of rewatches of movies. It was a lot of fun. I hope you appreciated it and liked it as much as I do. Please spread the word if you're listening to me. Let your friends know. I mean, I get a couple listens a week, not a couple, I get more than that, but I would love to like get just a lot, like a 100 would be cool. And that's not even that much, but it would it would mean a lot to me. If you're listening, please promote me to your friends. You can follow me on Instagram at Phenomenal Flicks Podcast or on Twitter at Phenomenal Flicks Pod. All one word, of course. Um, if you want to look at my list on Letterboxd, you can follow me personally at Pop Culture Tommy where I will have my list. I actually rank every film of 1975, so if you want to see things that weren't mentioned here, you can look at those on there as well. I would love to do 1976, 1977, 1978, so on and so forth up until today. I mean, at the end of the year, I will have a 2020 year in review, which will be very interesting. But yeah, I would love to do this again. And of course, they're going to take a couple months to accomplish. There's movies I have to rewatch. There's movies I have to watch for the first time. And so these aren't going to be happening all the time. They'll be a little sporadic, but I would like to do them maybe bi-monthly, like once every other month. would be pretty cool. But guys, let me know what you think please of course follow two week media as well at two week media on instagram and on facebook and of course on twitter where you can find the other podcasts that we house under there as well such as that's got to be wrestling i feel petty colin just hates musicals which is actually on a hiatus at the moment but it will be back and faking it thank you guys so much for listening and stay phenomenal